My name is Josh Alvarez. And I'm Liam O'Donnell. And you're listening to episode 178 of Cinebunks. Cinebunks. It's been a minute since we've recorded a Cinebunks, a Cinebunks proper episode, has it not? It has been way too long. I apologize to all of our <laughs> listeners who care about that sort of thing. I mean, for the most part, only Chris Reject harasses us, which is like if we go more than a couple weeks, he'll make a rude comment on social media. And I always find it annoying in the moment. But I think overall, what it suggests is that he actually likes listening to the show and wants more of it <laughs> is like a good thing. And so I, I do <clears throat> I do wish that we were able to record, but guys, stuff happens. We got busy, you know. Yeah. We, life we, happens. We were we were going good. I mean, part of the issue is that we were like for a while they're like, yo, we're gonna record as much as we can on Mondays. And then that just that whole plan fell apart. Though today is Monday. Yes. I don't think we've recorded on a Monday for over a month. So yeah, I don't know that that it's schedule has quite worked well, out. Well, no, it's it's been like I hit this weird patch though where my Mondays suddenly became high commodity that people needed to like do things with, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. And there was a beach mission with Evo, you know what it is, Liam, like it happens, right? Like in the summertime in particular, uh, these Mondays can be a high premium. You understand. But um, it's also the day that I go like to the doctor. You know what I mean? Oh, it's yeah. the day that I go like do all the errands. It's because like I'm off Sundays and Mondays from work. Having a weekday off is like gold. You know oh, what I mean? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like if you have like, you know, one weekend day. Cool. Me and Melani get the Sundays and then the Mondays is all moi. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. So totally. so that's when it's like, oh, yeah, it's good time. That's when I do Cinepunks and or lunch with Liam, sometimes both, sometimes both, Liam. But also that's when I see my therapist. That's when, like, you know, any scheduled appointments that have to be made get made on those days. It's a lot, Liam. It's a lot. I mean, to be fair, we did do three episodes in June. Woof. So that's cool. But yeah. It is also July 17th and we haven't done one episode. So, you know, sometimes it's it's a it's a little bit feast or famine depending on our schedule. So that, you know, we apologize for that, but it is what it is. So I and like I said, most people don't seem to be too frustrated because we've been doing it this way for it'll be a decade pretty soon. Yeah, so man. We're coming I think up on a most 10 folks years are used year. to it. But but we will try to get a little more regular for you all. On this episode. We're talking about Fellini again. So we did a Fellini episode previously with our friend Heidi Saman, director of a uh, movie we, we really liked called Namor. Also, she works for Terry Gross. At least at the time, she was working for Terry Gross. I don't know yeah. if she still is now, but she was working for Terry Gross. She's also a film director. She did a, a movie that we both really liked that was on Netflix. Uh-huh. She wanted to do a Fellini episode, so we talked about La Strada. Knights of Kiberia and La Dolce Vita. And Man. we had only seen La Dolce Vita, right? I don't think we had seen the other two movies at the time. I saw La Strada. Yeah, I saw La Strada before because it got name checked in um, Annie Hall. Oh, so yes. it was like one of those, like I had to watch it. Yes. But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We didn't. I, La Dolce Vita was a first time watch and Knights of Kiberia too. But it's funny because we went hard in that, uh, that episode. Three Fellini movies? Really? Well, so we used to do three movies as often as we did two, yeah. and now we're trying to get down to just one to make recording easier, though some would argue that you know maybe like three weeks off isn't great evidence that that's effective. But <laughs> still, I, that it, that is the goal of doing just one movie. And in this case, I'm glad we are because I think eight and a half kind of represents a singular moment, right? Yeah. When Fellini first started to pivot towards a more abstract style yeah 
whereas uh, La Strada and uh, Knights of Kiberia are both very artistic, very yeah, and uh, they have flashes uh, of the sur- they have flashes of a surreal aesthetic to them, but they're generally a linear narrative. Yeah, they they don't reach the levels of and and for some people they would mark eight and a half as the end of their Fellini interest. Yeah, that yeah. that you you get to eight and a half, and then everything after that people are not interested in. Now I, I do know that the general consensus is there are later Fellini movies that are straight up bad, even though they might have moments of brilliance. They are not great movies. Here's the thing. I don't know. I know those three movies we covered before. And then the movie we're talking about today, eight and a half. I not only have I seen it before, I told you this, Josh, but for y'all listeners, this was my first Fellini movie. I saw (laughs) eight and a half and I was like, Oh, what the fuck? Because this is, it's so, I mean, we'll get into it, but it's so self-reflective. It's so kind of autobiographical, but also not. It's, it's, it's the sort of autobiography, autobiography you do when you do slam poetry, right? It's not really you. It's a performance of you. It's a character of you. Yeah. But there's truth in that performance, even though this character is in some ways, nothing like him the ways that it is like him is is still kind of revelatory but maybe that revelation is not vulnerable because maybe he's trying to make it charming you know uh, i wonder i didn't read a ton about this movie I, I tried to find some essays and i found some things a lot of stuff was just about how amazing he is but one <laughs> of the details i did read was while he was making this movie he had a uh, on, in various places on his mirror on the camera he had a note for himself remember this is a comedy yeah so good I so ridiculous i think there's something to that man we'll, we'll yeah. get into it when we talk about the movie but here we are returning to fellini and this was really y'all like a, just a feeling of hey we did those three movies we said we we're gonna come back that was like this is how bad we are at time yeah Josh. that was 2017 that was, yeah that was a long fucking time ago, man. So like, we 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 aren't good at remembering stuff when we say we'll get back to this. <laughs> I we mean, don't we're not liars do though. We did get back to it because we're here, sure, sure. talking sure, sure, Fellini, sure. baby, talking Fellini. Well, and I do think that's one of the things. Like, when, now that we're even saying like, oh, we're gonna do like one movie an episode, I never am worried we're gonna run out of things to talk about. Like, that is nothing, you know. Like that is yeah. even if we do manage two episodes a month. That's 24 movies a year. That is nothing. You could do 24 movies a year of that year's releases and have stuff to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Let alone the history of cinema. You know what I Not mean? Not to mention you and me always <sighs> have stuff to, t- I never can just sure. say hi. Yes. You know sure. what I mean? Like 100%. whenever I talk to Liam, it's always like, okay, this will be another two hours, but it's cool. I mean yeah, like, no, yeah, totally. Yeah. That's, that's the thing, man. You're one of my best friends. <laughs> like, oh, buddy. It's just what it is, man. It's oh, just hey, what it is. I'll tell you now and I'll, and, and people will know when they hear the episode, but, uh, I'll tell other people too. I am going to be in the area <sighs> at the beginning of August. Like when? Like August 2nd to August 10th, I think. Can you get a ticket on August 4th? For? Homefront at TVI. Oh, that's when that show's happening? Yep, it's that Friday night with Homefront, Crown Court, Violent Way. Dude. Fuck. And yeah. then, and then I the mean, fifth, I'll, if it's not sold out, yeah, I'll, I'll get a ticket. And then the fifth, Homefront, they're playing Photo Club. Oh, yeah. Oh, cool. So I'm actually going to do fun stuff on there. Okay, fun. Yeah, oh. that's great. And then the fifth is also Monster Mania Con. Oh, is that right? The What's one that in, weekend? The one in Cherry Hill? Uh-huh. Oh, wow. 
And my plan was to actually reach out to you this week and ask for a T-shirt for one of the people signing, Mr. Lou Diamond Phillips, LDP. I want to show up and be like, yo, LDP, what up? Josh, the Filipino guy from Cinepunks. Remember when you did our episode? Here's a T-shirt that we owed you. Boom. Yeah, I'll bring some. Yeah, no problem. So cool. What do you think is good for him? A medium, a large? I don't know, man. He looks pretty buff. I don't know what he's doing. We'll go with a large. It's just a safe bet. Good call. Good call. Good call. Okay. Oh, hey. Uh, we should. Speaking of T-shirts and whatnot, we should thank some people. First off, of course, we're going to thank all of our supporters on Patreon. Uh, check us out: patreon.com backslash cinepunks. Uh, we are often putting content on, though maybe not as much as we were hoping, but there is stuff there. It's not like it once was when we were like, "Sorry, there's nothing there." There's stuff there. There's fun episodes and some things going on. And uh, as we said, we have T-shirts, so if you join the Patreon, you can get a T-shirt, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, hey, check it out. Also, uh, join the Discord. Oh yes, if you would like the uh, an invite to the Discord, hit us up on social media. We'll give it out to anyone. We haven't really just posted it. One is because those links actually expire, which I didn't realize because I've sent links to people, and if they don't click it at some point, it does expire. But also, we didn't want to just sh- put the link everywhere and then have a bunch of bots jump in there. So <laughs> uh, it's not that hard. Find us on social media. We'll get you into the Discord ASAP. Uh, speaking of other people that we love and someone who occasionally does post in the Discord, uh, Chris Reject over at Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations. As I said, he listens enough that he notices when we don't put out episodes under his timetable, which is every uh, <laughs> fortnight. It, yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. once a fortnight he 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 texts us or, or messages us on social media to be like, where's my new episode? Uh, <laughs> but yeah, uh, Josh, if you were going to get, let's say, hats made that said um, uh, the, the Pinoy Destroyer, Mm. Right. Yes. Where would you get those printed and or embroidered at? I would go to the Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations at xlvacx.com because Chris Reject is my homeboy, which should be a T-shirt. Yes, it should. Actually, that would be a fun shirt. It's a good one. It's a good one. So uh, also LVAC is moving into a new building and like, you know, they need your support because uh, Reject and company are undertaking a huge financial obligation, but to expand their business and to hopefully grow it. And, um, you know, they're such good dudes and they've been such good friends to us that like can't help but put them up. Like, listen, they got a they have a Patreon going right now. I believe they have a do they have a GoFundMe, Liam? They have one of those. They sure like, do. They have yeah. GoFundMe and Patreon, so you can give either one time or regularly. Yeah. So, but it would be an honest favor to us, Cinepunks, if you were to do that for us at xlvacx.com and uh, hit them up and let them know that, you know, you got their back just like they've had, that Chris has had our back and yours this whole goddamn time. The whole time. The whole time. Uh, of yeah. course, we also want to thank our buddy Aaron Dahlbeck over at EssexCoffeeRoasters.com. You know, high-quality coffee, roasted to order, uh, high-quality tea, apparel. And if you are getting the coffee and you're thinking, you know, I usually just use a traditional coffee maker. Maybe I want to try some other way to make my coffee. Aaron can help you out with that. So check them out, EssexCoffeeRoasters.com. When you're there, Let's say you're ordering some of that uh, Mexican blend. You're getting (laughs) maybe a mix. Maybe you're getting one of their sponsored blends that they have. On your way out, go ahead and enter the code C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X. Cinepunks, you're going to get 10% (laughs) off your 
order. Uh, uh, and finally, let's go ahead and thank our friend Sharky over at MechanicalSharkMedia.com. He uh, edits and uh, you know uh, sound masters all of our episodes, and we really appreciate him for that. Okay. Uh, I guess that's everything. Oh, yeah, and I have a T-shirt company called Rough Cut Fan Club. RoughCutFanClub.com. <laughs> I always forget that part. Yeah, sick T-shirts. Yeah. I would, if I wasn't flying out already, I would try to get a table at Monster Mania, but mm. I think um, I think um, flying out makes it hard for me to bring all the shirts. It feels Noted. like a pain in the butt, but I don't yeah. know. We'll see. We'll see. I'll think about it. We'll no, figure I it won't. out. I don't really want to, because then I can't go to Homefront, and that's what I want to do. So, <laughs> Dude. <laughs> okay, I'm so pumped for Homefront. Speaking right now. of Homefront, there's a section right now where we talk about the things that we're excited about, the things that we did that were cool, and the things that we did that were not cool. And, and uh, whack it on track. Oh, got me. Yeah. So, Liam, what have you done lately that is whack? And what have you done lately that is on track? Oh, man, that's a great question, Josh. I know. You didn't see me asking that, did you? You're such a good interviewer. Oh, my God. Easy segue. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Well, okay, I'm going to start with a movie uh, I actually went and saw today. I went and saw a little movie called Joyride. Oh, the Asian lady one. Joyride. Did you see Joyride, Josh? I did not. How was it? It's really fucking good. In fact, is it? Yeah, the whole reason I went to see it is because I saw this trailer and I was stoked. I was like, this looks fucking great. And I didn't go see it right away because I am a parent who doesn't go to see movies right when they come out. That's just my life now, y'all. I don't do it unless I have like a press pass or if uh, I know I need to for the podcast. Otherwise, I go to see movies when I can. And so uh, I had a little bit of time today and I knew we were recording and I thought, oh, I've heard from people via podcasts and social media that not a lot of people are seeing Joyride. It's just not something that I think has captured the national imagination. So I said, well, I think it looks great, but I don't want to get on a podcast and talk shit if I haven't seen it. Let's go see the movie. So I went (laughs) to go see the movie so I could have something to say. And guess what, Josh? What do you got to say? It was better than I even thought it was going to be. I think the marketing of it is like, it's like The Hangover, but but Asian ladies. Yeah, that's really bad. Yeah, I mean, it's not wrong in the sense that it is a raunchy comedy, but I think people overestimate the value of The Hangover. I get a lot of people love The Hangover. I think The Hangover is overrated. I, it's not terrible. It's a, it's funny, but it's not that funny to me, yeah, right? It's fine. It's and there's fine. And there's nothing to it other than the funny. And what I liked about this movie is that while it's not a very deep, it's not like a super deep, super emotional movie, it does have content other than the fact that it's super like raunchy and gross as well. Right. Like there is character development. There is, uh, uh, ideas around identity around adoption. You know, one of these characters is, uh, adopted by a white couple, you know, well-meaning, nice white folks, but she feels like she doesn't know a lot about her, you know, background. Uh, and she has kind of interesting relationships with her friends who are also very American, but still have some connection to what it means to be, in this case, Chinese, right? Mm. Uh, And what was the best part for me about the movie was not how funny it was, which it is very funny, not how sexy it is. It is very sexy. And I got to say, I got to say the, you know, the young lady who was in um, Everything Everywhere All at Once. Oh. What, What is her name again? She plays the the daughter? 
Yes. I always forget her name and I want to have it in front of me because I think she's so great. And that is, uh, <laughs> oh, Stephanie, Stephanie, uh, shoe, Stephanie shoe. Uh, Stephanie Shu, who was in Everything Everywhere All at Once, is actually the only one of the four main characters that I am specifically attracted to. So when I, I mean, I think she's beautiful. She's really hot. And mm. I, you know, I, I'm happily married. So I don't mean in that way, but just she's a very attractive <laughs> lady. But yeah. that's why I thought the movie was so well done, because the whole movie is sexy, even though I only think one of these people is like someone I would like to, you know, be involved with. Mm-hmm. There's still like an undercurrent of these being sexual characters uh, and uh, with Asian men who are often desexualized in movies, you know, like there's mm-hmm. a lot of very hot uh, Asian men and not just Chinese either because they connect with a basketball team that has a bunch of international members on the team. So it's like, uh, you know, Chinese, Indian, like all these people who maybe don't get that kind of treatment in a Western movie are in these, you know, very hot sex scenes. So that's great. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah, totally. And uh, multi- uh, all three, well, one of them isn't really a sex scene, it's a dance off, but all four of these scenes all ended really funny, like uh, Pratt Ball, Pratt Fall, rather, uh, physical comedy moments. So okay. it's like switching gears from like hot stuff to like, uh, comedy, I think that works. I think that's really fun. Um, but the my favorite part of all of this wasn't even that. It was that there are multiple moments in this movie that surprised me. And this is my problem with a lot of comedy, Josh. Sometimes when comedy is influenced by other things, it might still have jokes that work, like individual uh, gimmicks that work, right? Mm. It might have a plot that's interesting overall, but a lot of times they stop being surprising. Right. Because it's following beats that you've seen in other things. And even though I get why this movie, because it's a road trip. Right. If I was going to compare it to a movie, I wouldn't compare it to Hangover. I compare it to Girl's Trip, a movie that I I actually like more than The Hangover. Right. Right. Uh, But I thought it was better than Girl's Trip because even Girl's Trip has some familiar beats to it where you see they're following a formula. Somehow this road trip movie did tons of shit that I was like. I've never seen that before or, Oh, I didn't think, okay, that's where we're going to go. All right. Sure. Uh, I don't want to delve into those moments because I think they would, this is an example of me actually being in favor of spoiler culture, because if you find a movie and it's surprising you in a way that gives you joy, I understand not wanting to ruin that for someone else, you know? And I, and I don't know that those, that me giving those surprises away would ruin it. I think that's an exaggeration on my part, but I just think like, knowing a plot point doesn't actually ruin a movie, having someone tell you the joke ahead of time that you liked because it was so f- surprising that could ruin it or at least make it less funny. So, uh, yeah. and not just funny. There are surprising things that aren't just humor points, but there's just a lot in this movie that I did not expect. And I appreciate that. So, you know, I, I, I get that. I think there's a little bit of, um, as you know, there's been a recent sort of rise in, films with uh asian protagonists and people are seeing that as sort of a trend and whenever there's a trend there's pushback against that trend yeah and i think that's stupid uh honestly especially since none of these movies that i've seen have shit the bed yet you know what i mean like it's i don't the idea that like oh it's just part of this new trend of movies it's like okay and 
Like, <laughs> you know, yeah. like uh, Past Lives, sick, amazing, probably my movie, favorite movie of the year. Joyride, you know, not high quality cinema like that, but very fun, very funny, well uh-huh. acted. And like I said, Miss uh, 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 Shu from... Uh, from everything ever all at once is amazing and I love her. But uh <laughs> but like all these other movies, like even like something that's corny in Hollywood, like Crazy Rich Asians, that wasn't bad. It just was like what it was, which is like a movie for people in Oprah's book club, right? Like it was still fun. It just wasn't like high cinema. But like fucking uh what is it? The uh what's the one with uh Aquafina that was actually a good movie? Oh, um the the one about the grandma? Yes. Uh, the was it called the birthday? No, but it's like the something. Yeah, the it's like fr- the fr- 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 the, the celebration. I think it's called. No, I don't think it's that either. Dang it, I can't remember it. Sorry, y'all. Anyways, point is, there's been so many of these that people are seeing as part of a trend that are actually good. That I don't. The farewell. That's what it's called. Farewell. farewell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that I don't know why there's a backlash, but I've seen it. I've seen people pushing back against this. Uh, I will say, um. They probably should have gone with the original title of the movie, which was uh, The Joy Fuck Club. <laughs> I think that might have gone over more than uh, than Joyride. That's really funny. It's that really was the original good. title for that? That was the original on the script was The Joy Fuck Club. Jesus. I was listening. That's uh, Shout out to, uh, to uh, uh, Maximum Film Podcast because they had someone on there who's friends with people in the movie. And they were like, yeah, that is real. That's the actual. That was the original title. I think they knew it wasn't going to be called that, but that's what the script was called. Incredible. Anyways, I high recommend for me Joyride. Again, if you like raunchy sex comedies, if you're someone who only likes abstract intellectual humor, this might not work for you. <laughs> but if you want to hear about cocks and vaginas and shit. That's what this is, and it's great, and I loved it. Uh, I also want to shout out, I went to a show this past oh, yeah? weekend. Went and saw a band for their first appearance in Chicago everywhere. Anywhere. Their first appearance in Chicago <laughs> ever. Man, why is my... I'm, my brain is going faster than my mouth can keep yeah, up with right you now. Yeah, keep on thinking about Miss Jew from everything, everywhere, all she's at once. She's so fucking... Yeah, she's great. Um, <laughs> I saw Mind Force from the Lehigh Valley, and they nice. brought their... Buddies from the Lehigh Valley, Age of Apocalypse. Uh, and then there were more local openers like uh, Enervate from Milwaukee, Matter of Fact from Chicago, which did you ever check out that Matter of Fact demo out of Chicago? Yeah, it's good. It's really good. They were fun. Enervate's a lot of energy. It's it's it, They're not like my favorite band or anything, but I really like them. Uh, here's the thing. Age of Apocalypse on recording, I was a little skeptical of because of that guy's vocals. They're very much like someone behind me who was not into the show said, I feel like I'm being yelled at by a ghost. <laughs> and I can see that. That's the that's a fair uh, assessment. Uh, assessment of the vocals. I got to say, though, they're so good live. And once you just accept the vocals are what they are, then like you realize this band is like fucking kill. Like they're heavy. They're groovy. They have sick riffs. Like it's actually really great. And I, I was very skeptical of it, I think, because... I just wasn't really in a place where I wanted those kind of vocals. They're very like, um, uh, I don't know, some something like maybe like Life of Agony meets hair mm. metal sort of vocals, yeah. you know? Just like, <laughs> but like, also, I kind of dig it now. Like, it kind of clicked for me at the show. And I really yeah. was just watching it out of kind of a morbid curiosity. And by the end of the set, I was like, 
nah, man, this is good. These 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 guys are good. And I was kind of surprised that like people weren't going off for it that hard. Which like to me, mm. not every song. Like they have some faster songs that are definitely not for the mosh set. But they mm. have a couple songs where I'm like, people should be leaving here with black eyes right now. Like, <laughs> not that I'm endorsing violence, but come on, y'all. Like, people were into it, but they weren't going off. Unlike the Mind Force set, which I watched from, so this was at a, a club in Chicago in actually the Wicker Park neighborhood called Subterranean. And what's weird is the main part of Subterranean is actually upstairs, which doesn't make sense for the name. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's kind of a longer room than it is a wide room, which kind of sucks for the height of the stage. But if you go upstairs, there's like a the balcony. It's really just a hole in the floor with a railing around it that you can look down on the show. So that's where I watched the Mind Force set from. And I'm so glad I did because it was wild, man. It was a wild set. <laughs> a bloodbath down there? I, I wouldn't say quite that bad, but it was definitely people were going off. And I got to say, y'all, like, I still had never seen Mind Force. This is my first time getting to see it. Oh, wow. And it was great. They were great. They were clearly having a lot of fun. They sounded great. So that was great. And it was a, a matinee. So I was nice. out of the show by like 6.30. And then I could go Woo! get dinner. Like I literally yeah. went to dinner with friend of the show, Justin Abney. Good dude out here in Chicago. Used to do a horror podcast. And uh, we we just went and got dinner after the show, which is like, I don't remember the last time I went to dinner after a show, right? So Appropriate time dinner, too. Look at that. Yeah, it was cool. It was a good time. It was a good day. I felt good about it. A uh, friend of the show, Mike Dick, was also there. We were texting, but I never physically saw him. And then he went and got pizza after the show. And I, here's the thing, Josh. I didn't. I wasn't moshing. I was so fucking sweaty, man. I was, uh. like, covered. So me and Justin both just went for a walk around Wicker Park. So we could dry off, honestly, outside. Because <laughs> I just felt awkward sitting in a restaurant when I was like wet. covered in sweat. Yeah, yeah. no, yeah. it's gross. It's so we went, best. we went and got drinks at Seven Eleven and just walked around the neighborhood, which is cool because I'd only been to that neighborhood a couple times. Yeah. Once for a comedy show, I saw Maria Bamford in that neighborhood, nice. and then a couple times to go to a record store and a bookstore. But that was it. So I hadn't really checked out any of the other stores, and so just Justin kind of gave me his little tour of the area. And that was pretty helpful. There was some cool stuff there. So anyways, uh, that was a good time. And the last thing I want to mention, uh, and my, uh, all these are on track. I don't have any whack right now other than the state of the, the world. Oh, <laughs> by the way, uh, big respect to both the, the writers and the Actors Guild on strike right now. Yeah. Uh, big support to them. Um, you know, I don't think there's any uh, picket lines out in Chicago. But if there is, I'll drop some water off you know like i'll, I'll go <laughs> check it out but i don't think i don't think there is um uh i don't know have you checked out this show shrinking no but everyone tells me that i should be watching it because of a uh, good old harry ford in there yeah it's and, uh, uh it's uh you know harrison ford and uh, uh jason siegel yeah jason siegel and jessica williams right who used to be on the daily show and she did oh. two dope queens nice it's really like i mean harrison ford is great on it for me, it's the Jason Segel, Jessica Williams relationship. Like they just are great. Show is great. It's a lot of fun. I mean, I do think like some people have been like, well, you know, that's not how therapy really works. It's like, yeah, we all know it's a fiction <laughs> show. Like it's a TV show. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, not that there couldn't be an interesting show about how therapy actually works, but they wouldn't be this stupid and funny, right? And <laughs> and that's not to say it's not also dramatic. There is there is some like real emotional tension slash stuff being worked out in the show. But unlike some other shows that you might call a dramedy, it's really funny. Whereas I think a lot of dramedies are like, 
really serious with occasional moments of humor. You know what I mean? Yeah. This is more like a comedy all the way through that's taking the emotional stakes of its comedy seriously, right? So you care about these characters. You care about their feelings. But it's more invested in the funny than it is in the drama. And I appreciate that because I think too many of shows of this kind of flavor are not funny. And that's okay. Like the first couple you saw that were only a little bit funny and were more serious, that was fine because that was unexpected. Now it's the format, right? It's like when anything like this happens and it becomes like so standard that everyone just does that thing, that's just less interesting, right? Like I'm just glad to be seeing a show that, yes, has like serious emotions of loss and, and trauma and all this stuff sort of woven into it that is hitting you with some real fucking jokes, man. Some real good <laughs> shit. Like that, that doesn't always happen, especially not, I mean, this is on Apple, not HBO, but like, uh-huh. you know, HBO being the gold standard of these kinds of shows. Sometimes there's just not that much. There's only a couple jokes here and there or a couple of humorous gags here and there. And that's fine. But like, I don't know. Anyways, shrinking. I highly recommend it. I think you would think it's funny. Harrison right. Ford is good on it. He's just gruff the whole time, which is fun. Yeah. But uh, but there's other people. There's some cameos and stuff that are really great. So I, I definitely recommend it. Nice. That's it for me, buddy. What's going on with you? Um. Well, I saw a little movie called Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Speaking of uh, uh, Mr. Ford himself. Yeah. And uh, you know what, man? Fuck the haters. I loved it. I had a great fucking time. It was awesome. Most people I know who bothered to see it liked it. I only yeah. know I only know a few people who actually saw it who were kind of like not that into it. I don't know that everybody maybe I shouldn't say loved. I know a lot of people liked it. I don't know if everybody loved it, but well, I, I haven't mean, seen any I haven't seen many people be actually bummed on it who saw it. Yeah, it's a super fun movie. It hits all the notes for Indiana Jones while still being self-aware enough to like make fun of itself. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's not just a straight up, you know, like it's funny to see it in the pantheon of because like Melani and I watched all the Indiana Jones movies leading up to this. And it's just funny how like like we had discussed on the episode where we talked about Temple of Doom. It's a good movie. It's probably the one that we love the most because we've seen it the most. It came out right at the appropriate time for us to be completely attached to it. But it also has the least to do with Indiana Jones as an archaeologist and adventurer. Right. Like it's this weirdo, like he might as well have been a spy or something, you know, like there are moments where he talks archaeology. But like for the most part, that's just an action movie. You know what I mean? Whereas, but it's better than Crystal Skull, man. Oh, I mean, that's, yeah. That's infinitely better. Crystal I mean, Skull, the, like uh, when I was reading on it, there one of the things that I read was that uh, um, George Lucas was really trying to interject the concept of aliens into the Indiana Jones canon. And thus, that's how we end up with this movie. But um, Ugh. yeah, 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 piece of shit. But this one, it there's a joke in there. Spoiler alert! I'm gonna spoil the joke. There's a scene where he's talking to Phoebe Waller Bridges as they're climbing through a cave, and he's like, "You don't know what I've been through. You didn't have to drink the black blood of Kali." <laughs> it's so good. It's such a funny line that's almost a throwaway line in this movie, and they don't do it a lot. There's not a lot of self-reference in this movie. But when those things do pop up, they hit so good. And it, it made a bunch of like old people in the theater laugh, which I was into. I was one of. And um, but overall it kept the tone of the, you know, the Indiana Jones movies that count, you know, uh, of Raiders and of Last Crusade. And um a lot of to do was made over the de-aging of Harrison Ford in the first 20 minutes of the movie. 
Gotta say, didn't bother me. Looked pretty good. The only issue is that they de-aged his voice, and that sounded weird to my ears. Like, it didn't hit. You know what I mean? Yeah, I understand that. The visual, though, of him, of young, you know, Indiana, pretty great. Gotta say. I mean, there's a lot of stuff to it also that was just like, all right, I get it. He's on top of a train fighting a Nazi. He's like, okay, well, you know, sure. He's fighting Nazis, though. Pretty good. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, and. Overall, have you seen it yet, Liam, or no? I have not. Are you going to? I don't know. I mean, you know, when I can see it on the thing that we have for free, uh-huh. that's, yeah. when I'll, that's when I'll watch. I mean, the same as, I mean, I hate to say it because I know Indiana Jones deserves more respect than some of the other things I'm not seeing. But <laughs> this was not, for me, the summer of big old blockbusters, partly because, for me... Once I saw Across the Spider-Verse, I didn't really need any other blockbusters in my summer. Like, I just... just so you're not like, going to do Mission Impossible? You're not going to do Indiana Jones? You're I, not am, do like- I am thinking about Mission Impossible in the theater. That's that's sort of a... The last few Mission Impossibles in the theater, I think, I saw all the Wasus. So that's sort of like a thing we can do together that I care about. But, like, I didn't see the fast... Fast X, I didn't see that in the theater. Ooh, I'm not going to see Indiana Jones in the theater, probably. Mm. Uh, again, uh, well, here's the thing. I don't think of Oppenheimer as that, you know, it's because of this, the hype behind it is technically a summer, you know, movie, but like it's, I don't think of it as that kind of blockbuster movie. You know what I mean? Like that is yeah. a different experience. Honestly, I'd probably see Barbie first. Like really? it, it, if I get my way, oh yeah, I am at the the movie after Spider Verse. I was most excited for this summer was Barbie. Is wow. Barbie? I'm still excited for Barbie, and so uh, I'll probably see Barbie and then maybe Oppenheimer. But it's that's like a different thing. Uh, uh, Barbie, Greta Gerwig hasn't missed yet. Mm. Oppenheimer, Nolan, many misses in my book. A few misses, multiple yeah. misses. So <laughs> like. I get that, like, on a basic level, Oppenheimer seems more like my kind of movie than Barbie does in some ways. But in other ways, it's like, I don't know, Greta Gerwig. It's <laughs> it's a very meta take on Barbie. Like, there's a lot of it that, like, appeals to me about what they're doing. Plus, I can take Maeve to Barbie. So it's like my options of seeing it in the theater are more. Yeah. The problem for me is with Nolan, I just think, you gotta see it in the theater. You know what I mean? Like I've seen some of his movies outside the theater too, without having seen them in the theater. But uh-huh. for a movie of the size of Oppenheimer, I kind of think I really want to see it in the theater because I'm worried that yeah. if I only have the home option, I'm not gonna bother. I don't know yeah. that I'm gonna bother. It's a long movie. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. But it's on seventy. I want to see it. I yeah, see it on yeah, 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 yeah. I know? mean, that's like, that's sort of what I'm. That's how I'm feeling about it as well. Mission Impossible similarly i just enjoy them more in the theater than i've ever enjoyed them at home so i want to see that in the theater as well but again that's a little bit more of a nostalgia move than like i don't know that i cinema appreciation i don't know that i love any of those movies but i enjoy all of those movies if that makes sense you know what i mean like i get it i've never been bummed on them as opposed to say like a fast movie like some of the fast movies i love and some of them i hate so like there's it's more of a mixed bag you know Mm. I don't know. It's kind of like a carb, right? Like a lot of flavor, not a lot of substance. I get that. That's cool. But um, I don't know. I'm still going to see it in theaters. I'm hyped. Um, but yeah, 
Indiana Jones Dial Destiny, big recommend, especially if you're an Indiana Jones fan. It's 100% what you want. Um, I also got to see a little show the other day. I saw the magnetic fields at World oh, Cafe yeah. Live. And it How was, was something that? it was like uh something of like a greatest hits because they're building up for like the anniversary. It's like a, a a hallmark year for 69 love songs. So um like it's coming up, but they've been doing like this like greatest hits kind of tour. And it was awesome. You know who the opener was? Who? Secret Cinema. Oh, really? Yeah, so they showed a bunch of like French music shorts from the 60s and 70s and stuff. And that was really fun. And then it was the Magnetic Fields and they played for like a hour and a half, maybe two. It was so good. They played all the hits. It, I mean, like they played a bunch of stuff from 69 Love Songs, but they also played a bunch of stuff from uh, Lonely Highway. They played a bunch of stuff from Wayward Bus. It was awesome. It was such a fun show. I got to watch them with a former guest and friend of the show, Matt Garrett, director, and uh, his fiance Ashley. It was a super fun time, and um, I'm pretty hyped. Every time the Magnetic Fields come, I'm going to go watch them. They're one of my most favorite bands of all time. So that was really good. And it was at World Cafe, so the sound was really nice, you know what I mean? And it was sold out, but it didn't feel crowded. You know, there was enough room to mosh, so that was cool. And then the day after that, I got to play a show in Asbury Park, New Jersey with Cross Keys, and we got to play with uh, Town Liar. Have you heard this band yet? No. It's Shevchuk's new band. So it's him and Nick Remondelli, who also was in Bound with Jay and was in Autumn. And uh, on drums is uh, Mr. Benny Horowitz from the Gaslight Anthem and from Dilemma and from Yellboy and every band from the 90s in New Brunswick. And um, the bass player was the only person, Heath Sers, his name's Heath, I think. I don't know. He's the only person who I didn't know. But um, they were really, really good, you know, as all as we can expect with any of the any of Jay's bands, uh, who also incidentally, you know, might remember as our first guest ever on Cinepunks. It's true. It's true. So, but we played with them. We played with um, Len's new band with Chris Ross on drums, Born Tired. Also really fun, like kind of a melodic hardcore thing going on. And then um, Jonathan Francis, who's also like a singer songwriter from Asbury from the beach. He played with a full band. So it was a really fun show and it was cool to play in Asbury. I hadn't played in Asbury in a long time, not since my George's Dead days when we played the fast lanes. And um, show went off pretty well. Had a great time. And Grace's shirt was excellent, as it always is. So big up to my girl, Grace. And that's all I got. All right. Well, that's a pretty good list. I like the videos of y'all playing in Asbury. Those were cool. That <laughs> space seems pretty cool, but uh, I'm glad it was a good time. Uh, so we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about eight and a half. And I'm going to tell y'all, I don't know that either one of us feels like Fellini experts, even though this is our fourth Fellini movie we're talking about. <laughs> so if you're hoping we're going to come in with some real mind blowing shit, I don't know if that's the, the case, but yeah, maybe. I think we're both excited to talk about it either way. We're definitely excited, but you should definitely adjust your expectations. Sure, sure. That's cool. Okay. All right. After the break. A girl went back to Napoli because she missed the scenery, the native dances and the charming songs. But wait a minute. Something's wrong. Hey, mambo, mambo italiano. Hey, mambo, 
Mambo Italiano, go, go, go. You mixed up Sigiliano, all you Calabrese do the mambo like a crazy with a hey, mambo. Don't want a tarantella, hey, mambo. No more mozzarella, hey, mambo. Mambo Italiano, try an enchilada with the fish bacala. Hey, I love how you dance a But take some other advice, Paisano. Learn how to mambo. If you're gonna be a square, you ain't gonna go nowhere. Hey, mambo. Mambo Italiano. Hey, mambo. Mambo Italiano. Go, go, Joe. Shake like a Giovanni. Hey, look, as a ditch, you get a happy in the feet. So when you mambo, Italian. Baby, shake it, cause I love it when you take me Mama say you stop or I'm gonna tell a papa and I hate Jadrul You don't have to go to school Just make a with a beat of bambino It's like a vino Kid, you're good at looking but you don't know It's cooking till you ain't mambo Mambo Italiano, eh, mambo, mambo Italiano, oh, oh, oh. you mixed up Sigiliana, it's so delicious, everybody come capisce how to mambo Italiano. That's nice. And we're back, and we're here to talk about 1963's Eight and a Half by film auteur Federico Fellini. As we said, this is our fourth Fellini movie that we've watched for this show specifically. And um, as we talked about at the top of the episode, neither me or Liam are even knowledgeable on Fellini. Yeah, I'd say that's fair, right? Like, I, Yeah, I, I don't know this. more than what we've watched, you know what I mean? Like, which right. is four movies. And I don't know anything about, like, I remember I had to watch Satyricon for high school, I think. Well, that was Fellini, right? Satyricon was Fellini? Yeah, I think that's right. And that's like later era Fellini. That's like going into like the weirdo Shakespeare stuff. But um, I never saw Americord. I never saw um, Juliet of the Spirits. I've, I seen never saw the- I've seen Americord. I don't think I've ever seen Juliet of the Spirits. Those are the ones that are after this movie. Because this is his last black and white movie that he ever shot. Right. And then he moves into this color surrealism thing. And I, I didn't see any of those. Except for Satyricon, I think. I've definitely seen Satyricon, and I've definitely seen Americord, but I'm wondering if there's much after that that I've seen. And to be fair, when I saw Americord, I didn't know anything about him. So I, mm. I, it was like eight and a half. It was like I went in knowing, like, this is Fellini. I think yeah. Americord, it was like, oh, I just put it on. You know what I mean? Like, it, it wasn't like, uh, anyways, it doesn't really yeah. matter. But, no, uh, I get it. It's, but it's funny because eight and a half is my first Fellini also. <laughs> oh, that, that was right? in that was in high school, and I had no idea what I was looking at. It was part of a. Do you remember in 1994 when there was that gigantic ice storm that shut down all the public schools for three weeks? Yes, it was during that time that was born in the basement of Casa de Alvarez, uh, the crappy movie posse where the RX place, the the pharmacy that was like a mile down the road, 
They had $1.50 rentals and they had a wildly stocked movie section. Like we saw a bunch of horror movies that way. And then like the whole concept for the, the movies during that ice storm in particular was to find the weirdest and most crazy shit we could even think of. You know what I mean? Cause it was like, it was me and Richie Rojas and uh bow wow and Joe Alvin, like that, my high school crew, you know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, we rented movies like the boneyard and chopping mall and stuff like that. But then we also rented eight and a half for some goddamn reason that I can't think of now. And I remember watching it with those idiots and just being like, I mean, I'm an idiot too. So it was like all of us dummies just like in my parents' basement being like, why is this guy flying like a kite? Why is his foot tied to that guy? Like it was like a whole bunch of like no idea what the hell was going on kind of thing. Sure, 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 sure. Okay, well, let's get into it then. What do you think of eight and a half? Let's just start with how we feel about it. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's funny you bring up him flying as a kite, right? Like people talk about it a lot. So it's a big cliche to say, but the opening sequence of this film is some of the most amazing shit I think you're going to see in a movie. Right. Yeah. And even, it also even inspired now. so many movies. Oh, 100%. And the everything hurts video from REM comes to mind immediately as upon watching it. Right. Right. Um, when he feels trapped in the tunnel, that is one of the most harrowing sequences. The feeling that everyone is looking at him. That he's and trapped the car in is filling space. with smoke. Yeah, he can't breathe. And then this image of him kind of floating away. But then the horror of like this kite moment, right? And then his falling. That this figure that looks like some sort of, you know, demonic religious figure is just like, you know, casting him down. Right. Yeah. It's intense, man. It's it's, it's so good. It's so good. And it, it sort of sets the stage for what the movie's gonna be. Um, I think critics of the film have accused it of just being a a a, a variety of very well done dream sequences without much movie in between. Mm. Uh I think that's short sighted because I think those dream sequences are so revelatory of our character that they make sense of what's going on in these segments that might feel short, but are still important for what's happening here. And even more so the parts that are not him dreaming are still themselves edging reality, right? Like they're still pushing credulity in a way that is unsettling and comedic. Mm -hmm. Uh, But above all, I think, um, the fact that this is a movie about directing, right? Yeah. It, it, in a, uh, so, I also love this movie. Um, the first time I watched it, I loved it, but I felt bad. Mm. On this watch, I felt less bad. Right. And here's the thing that folks will have to come to terms with. Those few people listening who haven't seen this movie, I assume, I'm assuming that most people willing to listen to this episode have seen the movie, right? Mm. But or just case, love us, but I get it. Yeah, but most, most people have probably seen the movie. Those few of you who are listening who haven't seen it, right? And you decide to watch it based on what we're saying. It is at its heart a creative film about uh, not just directing, but the creative process. I think it's most clearly the creative process through directing. And what I find, in fact, if you go to uh, the Criterion channel, there are videos and videos of directors talking about Eight and a Half and about their experience of Eight and a Half as a director and how much they identify with the emotions of it, with this feeling Mm. of, you have all these different pieces and they're all waiting on you and you can't just pull it out of nowhere, 
right? Like yeah. the script isn't there. The set's coming together. The costumes <laughs> are coming together. All the actors are there, but you don't fucking have it yet. You don't have yeah, the movie. You don't have yet. anything yet. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so many directors talked about that being so real. And so I think at its heart, that's what the movie is, but yeah. it's a movie about that being made by one of the most notorious Lotharios in the history of Italian <laughs> cinema. Fellini fucked, and he fucked a lot. <laughs> right? Yeah. If you also, on Criterion, watch the uh, interviews with various people involved with the movie, you will find out how many women who worked for him were also his lover, right? Mm -hmm. Including the woman who plays the mistress of this movie, right? Yeah. In the movie, she feels to me like she is instrumentalized as a point of humor right i don't know that she feels like she's taken seriously as a real human being in the context of the movie he That's was weird, fucking man. that woman that is his lover good lord right yeah. so like and he was they were together for 17 years man this wasn't like a yeah just on the set and then they moved on with their lives oh no 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 no. this was a long-term relationship and they were notorious for both being very passionate and fighting in public all the time, as well as, you know, having sex everywhere. So whatever <laughs> point is this, the, the movie sometimes, oh, the movie sometimes inspires commenters on the movie to focus only on what is, I think essentially a secondary point, but is so essential to who Fellini is. It feels like maybe the point of the movie, which is the worship and fear of women. And I mm -hmm. think essentially it's about him and about his relationship with women, but you could take that particularity and make it universal that for a whole lot of heterosexual men watching this movie, they will see that their instrumentalization and objectification of women is tied to their fear and awe of women, which is what this movie is, right? He mm. doesn't treat any women in his life particularly well. And he has this fantasy sequence where every woman is made into some, <laughs> a function of his desire and once they part of his a, harem where they all live yeah with once him. they reach a certain age they get retired to the second floor you know where i guess not the sexy women go and, yeah where they're destined to relive and and reminisce on their dalliances uh -huh, with uh -huh. the director and his beautiful wife is just made into the housekeeper like he's yeah. it's not like my man has like has a has a wife at home that doesn't inspire awe in and of herself right like this is a beautiful model level woman who he is stepping out on on a regular yeah, basis. Right? Anouk Ami, yeah, very yeah. famous uh, French mo or Italian model. Yes, God. unbelievable, unbelievable. Yeah. So, so I, so I, I think it's important to say the part of the movie that is about art, I have no ambiguous feelings on, and I know some people still do, but for me, I think it's perfect right it really is i've never directed but it really made me understand the feeling he's having of being someone who people value his art they value what he can do but also because they value it they expect perfection and i'm not saying that yeah i've had a lot of people in my life expect perfection but i haven't had people expect performance and when you are performing you aren't necessarily going to be your best that's just the reality and yeah. so just because you pulled off something that felt like magic to someone one time you're not going to be magic every time that's just not real right mm. and so directing is to some extent about failure just like any creation is about failure and mm. that's partly what this movie is about and so for me that is very powerful right and it, it, it has a real resonance whatever 
I'm not dismissing the part of the movie that is about how he can't figure out his relationship to the women in his life, right? That he is a uh, in in you know inconsolable liar. Like he just can't stop lying. He can't stop manipulating, and he can't stop making it clear in the context of the movie that he needs these women to value him so that he can value himself, yeah. right? And inspire him. Yes, and inspire him to be creative. Mm-hmm. However, the movie is so clear-eyed about that that it's hard for me to buy into the view of the movie where this is just a like a misogynist fantasy, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think that's real. I think he is well aware that the character he's created, which is a reflection of himself, mm-hmm. that this dude sucks when it comes yeah. to women. I don't think he's making this movie thinking, I'm going to make this movie and people are going to understand that I'm actually a good guy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, but that's the thing, right? Like he actively distances himself from the character in the movie at the end, like when the yes. press and everything is do- is going. Yes. And he talks about how, well, he failed to make a movie. Am I a failure? No, I made the movie. Yes. So it's like, it, it's funny because it's like, it's the ultimate gambit, right? Like it's the ultimate gambit of self-awareness versus artistic fortitude. Well, and, um, I think it's a I think it's a to to be on the more negative side for a second. I think this is a very this is one of the ways that patriarchy functions, right? There are those men who live in total denial, who are total like misogynist monsters who think that they're just doing the right thing. And then there are those of us who understand the world should be a certain way, but maybe we are still deprogramming ourselves from patriarchy. Like for me, like I very much want to not be a patriarchal uh, 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 you know, heterosexual man, I'm sure it still comes out. And I would never say, y'all, I figured it out. I am now <laughs> a full, you know, perfect guy when it comes to, you know, uh, gender stuff, especially like in a traditional sort of uh, cis gender realm, you know. Uh, uh, I think I am learning as much as anyone else. So, I, you know, I, I, but I, but I think I'm in the camp of people who know that we're fucked up or figuring it out. But there's also the realm that I think this movie is in, which is not a full and bracing of uh misogyny right Uh, i think what it is is this feeling of like well if i acknowledge that i'm a hound dog then it's like it's more oh it's this way that in patriarchy men can like be self-critical of how they're acting but not change how they're acting you know mm, what i mean like they can just say this is just how men are and and the movie never does that specifically it never he never has the opportunity to say well how can you expect anything better from me i'm a man but the vibe of the movie is very much hey look i'm mocking myself hey look Mm. i'm making fun of my behavior therefore it's cool but like he was very similar to the way, you know what I mean? Like it'd be different Mm. if this was a movie made by some guy that we all knew was a very faithful man who didn't have a ton of mistresses and fuck his way across Italy. Right. And I'm not trying to judge. It's not the sex that matters, which I think sometimes gets confused. Like he should be judged. Yeah. yeah, It's that he was not now I'm not an expert. And so I do want to leave the door open that maybe he had some sort of understanding with his wife. Right. Mm. But the vibe I got from the interviews I watched was not that this was all cool. This was all, you know, uh, all good in the hood. Right. Mm. I didn't get the vibe that this was like, yeah, he was just in an open relationship, whatever that would mean in the sixties or fifties or whatever. I got the feeling that he was, you know, a cheater basically. Mm. And that not only was he a cheater, he was an angry cheater who yelled at everybody, which is also a problem. Right. Mm. So I think that, um, it's hard because 
there's something about this movie that is very unsettling to me, even why I think it's a beautiful fucking, it's a beautiful movie. Yeah, it's gorgeous. I mean, just the high contrast through every scene. It made it difficult to read the subtitles if you watched it on Criterion because the subtitles yes, are white. agreed. And the movie is so fast, like the talking. Italian is just a really fast language, and it was really hard to keep up with white this on felt, white. This felt fast on purpose, though. It didn't just feel fast for Italian. It felt like there were moments where the dialogue was squished in. Yeah, there's also a lot of like mumblecore, like uh, Swanberg, like everyone talking at one time kind of moments. And it was just like, uh, or actually more Spielberg, I guess. Like it, it's definitely a lot of like really kinetic conversation that yes. isn't even driven by a linear narrative. So just like trying to keep up with everything while it was white subtitles on white backgrounds was difficult for me. I'm not going to lie to you. Maybe it's because I'm getting old. I don't know. That said, the movie is gorgeous. It looks every single shot is a postcard and it is truly a glory to be held. And that in part is because of the contrast and like the way they use the light. Like there's the one scene when he's arguing with his wife in the, in the room where she unscrews the light bulb and then puts up the newspaper, like a board between the two light bulbs to block the light that is on. It's such an interesting way to light, like the way that it lit her and it lit the newspaper is so beautiful to me. I thought it was mind blowing. Talk to me. I want to hear from you first about, you know, you, unlike me, like, you know, maybe there's, maybe there's some place where I have an artistic bone. I don't know, <laughs> but I'm not creating the way that you are. So talk to me first about watching the movie from that perspective, a movie that is about creation created in a different context where you have been doing it, but still it's essentially about creation, about ego in creation and the lack of ego and about expectations. How did all that play for you? How did it resonate? Talk to me about that. One of the things as a musician, as a creative person, as an artiste, if we can call it that, um, the resonance in the movie is the guilt, the parents coming back from the dead. Yeah. Yeah. yeah all yeah, that yeah. stuff. Like, Holy Moses. When I was watching that, those are the bits. And granted, uh, like like Fellini had to remind himself, like Melani reminded me while we're watching it, this is a comedy, right? So, I mean, I get it. There's, there's a lot of farce and farcical things in it, but it's a very nascent line of like this, everybody wants something from you and this guilt of not knowing what it is to give to these people. Whoa, pretty intense. Famously, Roger Ebert, before he died, when he reviewed this movie, he said it's the greatest movie about making movies ever made. <laughs> And uh, it's the greatest movie about creating art ever made, in my opinion. I don't, I don't know. I would say it's certainly the greatest that I have that I can think of that I've seen. There might be better ones out there, and I and I'll take you know if people have suggestions. But for me, I think that might certainly about making movies. It's yeah. un it's unbelievable, and uh, and is so clear in that in that idea of what it's like about what's at stake about yeah. what it feels like and we're given this character of guido who is so charming and so smarmy and so like you feel for him that guilt that way he's trying to get away from all the pressure but also you watch him make so many bad decisions yeah. well here's the thing about guido's character in particular marcello yeah. mastriani yeah he is the epitome of cool 
Sure, sure, sure. In sure. not only this movie, but in this era. I mean, think about it. He's got this this hat and the suit that's never wrinkled. His shoes are always shiny in this movie. He's always wearing those Prada sunglasses. You know what I mean? But he's always but don't smoking you think a cigarette. But isn't there to some extent a feeling of also mocking that cool? Yeah, because hundred percent. He's it, he's looking like this at the retreat center that's for rotting old people. Like there are so <laughs> many scenes where he's there. He's trying to look cool, and he's surrounded by. These people that I think Fellini had a lot of respect for, like one of the commentators, and again, we're, I'm no expert. I'm now quoting other people, but one of the commentary things I watched was talking about, and in fact, this is even from one of the actresses who had worked with him said this, that he had this deep fascination and interest in common people, that he was, at while he was showing you things like models, actors, like there is this glamour at times, he both in his art and in his personal life, was fascinated by all the people around him. And in this movie, there is always some normal-ass motherfucker reminding you <laughs> that the other people are fucking crazy. That, are the like, weird ones, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, like and that so, scene at the end where he makes the, the one guy do the dance? Yes. <laughs> and then yes. he's like, I'll give you a role if you do a dance. And he does the dance, and he's like, what's my role? It's like, ah, there's no role. <laughs> so good. But oh. I, to me, that it's at its sharpest when he first is like at this water thing, right? And he has the vision of the beautiful woman during that time too. But when uh. he's at this water thing, everyone else there has no fucking illusions about why they're there. Like, like, well, not everyone. He's interacting with some people who are saying they're there to be seen because it's like a cool place to be. Most of the people there, they're just going to die, right? And so they're here drinking the weird water, which is like pseudoscience fucking religious stuff. Religious, yeah. And and, and by the way, that is one of the things we'll talk about in a little bit here is religion in the movie. But in this particular scene, it's not just the weird pseudoscience religion stuff of this, of this, this spring, but it's also the idea like, why is he so concerned with being seen and being cool when he's surrounded by people who are just trying to get a few more years out of their rotting body, right? Like <laughs> no one is like, like except for the people he's kind of directly connected to, no one's there looking beautiful, right? They're just yeah. normal people who believe yeah. this is going to keep them alive for a little while longer so they can sell more cheese or go to the factory or whatever, you know? And here he is trying to be like hip. It's, and maybe this is unintentional. Maybe I'm reading into Fellini. In that scene, I thought, what a fucking ridiculous asshole this guy is. You know what I mean? I mean, uh -huh. still very cool, right? But like, I think we've both talked about this. Guys, I, I still think I'm pretty fucking cool, right? I think I am, actually. I have very cool moments. But, uh, but that's fucking stupid, right? Like, there's nothing <laughs> about being cool that's cool, that's, like, actually valuable other than the fact that it's cool, right? There's just a certain kind of cultural cachet that, like, certainly if there was, you know, if the climate collapses, I have nothing to offer, right? <laughs> if you need help with a real problem, all the things I have to offer you are not about me being cool. Now, once I can offer you, like, compassion or a little bit of, like, counseling because I've had some training in those areas – then we can talk about like, I don't know, something neat and cool that we both like. Right. And that, yeah. that'll be fun too. But like in that scene, I've just, and, and in multiple scenes, it just feels like sometimes he also just doesn't know like where he's at or what to do, you yeah. know? And the but most that's, humorous that's the part of that essay yes, of yes, the yes. creative process though. 100%, 100%. Like that's the thing. You don't even know if what you're doing is good. Right. Yes. 
Yes, he is utterly unsure if anything he's done yeah, is worthwhile. It's so good. And that, that's the thing, right? Like, he truly does relish this bourgeois, like, you know, status symbol and, like, famous people thing. But it's also he's so displaced in all of it. You know what I mean? Because right. of the suit and yes, because of yes. the coolness. Like, no matter where he is, he just doesn't look like he belongs there. Yes. And it's such a masterful way that Fellini found a way to critique that bourgeois culture while still participating in it. It's also, so interesting. Also, that just made me think about the weird, one of the weirdest parts of this movie, and that's including all the fucking abstract dream sequences and shit. One of the weirdest parts of this movie is the idea that he's going to be there to make a sci-fi. He's going to be making a sci-fi film. Yeah. What the like, fuck are we even talking about? Why is he I making know. a sci-fi film? It's, it's so, so insane. Funny. It's so weird. But here's the other thing about this movie. And uh, I read it in one of um, the BBC articles about it because this is the, it's something like, yeah, like the 50 year and 60 year anniversary of this movie is this year. It's the fact that this movie, it, 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 it's so absurd and it's so, yes. it's so ridiculous that it really did inspire Terry Gilliam. Like, yes. Think oh, about the fact that's that one of the directors that they talk to on Criterion. If y'all want to see the clip, he goes in depth about this movie and how much it meant to him. Yeah. He saw it when it came out in the theaters in the 60s and it was his first discovery of European cinema. And it's just, it's such an interesting, like, dude, to make a sci fi movie. <laughs> That's what this is all about. And you got this castle made of metal. What the hell? Dude, incredible. And to think that that like to think that that's where Terry Gilliam was like inspired by when he directed things like Brazil, when he directed things like Time Bandits, like that's insane to me because it was sci fi. That's what it ended up being. Yeah. OK, so I think that part is magical. Let's talk about. The other thing, before we get to the more complicated aspect of like women and sexuality in the movie, because I think this leads into that question, because this movie is so fucking Catholic, which again, yeah, it's it an really Italian is. movie. Yeah. So of course it is. Like, I think, so, you know, for younger people who maybe haven't watched as much uh, Italian film, you might not realize like there is no, maybe not no, but there's a, certainly from the 60s what Italian cinema is not Catholic, right? Like yeah. everything is, but this is like really, like this is very much about his upbringing, about his relationship with the church, about his feelings about his own sexuality in light of the church and also about the church's influence on culture, right? Like this is an art film director who wants to make a sci-fi movie who has to kiss the ass of multiple Priests. Fucking priests and bishops and shit, so he can get the church's blessing on his movie. Why? Who the who fucking cares, yeah. right? But it's essential. Like his producers see it as fucking essential that he gets the approval of these folks. Yeah, but he's also casting them too. Yes. Oh what did what did you th what did you think? Talk to me about the what you thought about the religious themes of the movie. It's so funny because the religious theme of the movie is also devoid of spirituality, right? Yes. Like it's just money. It's so bizarre because it's so not bizarre. It's so like on the nose. And uh, I really, it's, it's interesting to see because I actually didn't know that he was the Lothario. I thought that Mar Marcello Marcioni was, but um, I mean, I guess it makes sense, but also it's just like, wow. Like not only is it the guilt of being an artist that is blocked, but the guilt of religion 
playing into your art. It's insane to me. It's like a wild double-edged knife. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did it res- did it resonate any differently with you, given that your you know religious experience and background? No, I mean, part of the problem for me is, despite my family being Irish and all of my blood relatives, it seems like being Catholic. Like the only blood relatives I have that are not Catholic are the ones who converted to like evangelicalism or something like even my relatives who are atheists are still fucking catholic right so it's like (laughs) this very intense catholic thing i don't still understand catholicism like i went to half a year of catholic school and it was so not fun that my mom put me in public school instead right (laughs) and so uh i it's still kind of even though i have theological education and i understand the theory of what's going on in the Catholic church, sometimes the culture of it all is very confusing to me. I will say the thing I kind of felt like was communicated in the movie. I do think there is a spirituality in the movie, but is a spirituality about oddly enough, considering the themes of sexuality in it, women, right? Mm. All the women who aren't sex objects are representations of the mother, the aunt, the grandmother, Uh. the caring force. In fact, his childhood memories are just about women, right? Like mm. none of his childhood memories involve nurturing men at all, which is maybe like a Italian stereotype or something. You know what I mean? Like I don't want to yeah. make any huge cultural statements here. I don't feel like an expert on what was going on at the time, but it does feel very resonant with some of the things oh. that I know from art and things like that, that like all of the nurturing elements are these women. And then even in the context of uh the other places we see him all the men are like in the sense of like uh the authority figures of the priests they're all demanding and gross yeah. right they're, they're not all like devoid of emotion yes. yeah 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 but you know even at the spring the women giving the water and then he has the vision of the one actress that he really wants in his movie and she's so beautiful and i think what she kind of represents in that moment is a conflation of these two images he has of women, one being this kind of nurturing uh, Madonna figure. And then the other one being the, like the woman who desires him and makes him feel sexy. Right. Mm. And, and uh, you get the same sort of vibe in his uh, fantasy, which is like, we'll get into in a second, but you know, he's kind of moved his wife into this nurturing role, right. Where Mm. she is his caretaker in this, in this fantasy he has. Uh, And her role is to like make the house, run right Mm. which is how he remembers the women in his childhood uh and so um i think there's there's something to that while it is i think limiting and it does represent a patriarchal view of gender dynamics Mm. it still is also a kind of spirituality for him because the church the church is just a is just a source of power and it's one that you have to placate and your actual beliefs don't matter but he does believe in some sort of nurturing force, some sort of past where women cared for him and they loved him and they were almost mystical. That moment with the grandmother checking on the children, mm. there's a magic there that I think is related to a kind of spirituality, but he is confused by it. So like, there's no clarity there. He's There's no revelation for you as a viewer there other yeah. than the idea that like, not all women are meant to fuck him. Right. Mm. Because if you just go by later in the movie, women qualify as either people he's going to have sex with or not. Right. Mm. And there is no other category, really. But 
that's not his earliest memories of women. His earliest memories of anyone showing him attention seems to be these women. Mm. But again, it's still instrumentalized, right? That's just a different function in his ego, right? So there's desire and there's caregiving. But there is an independence, really. And, I, and in some ways, I almost feel like there's a fear of independence in, in the movie, right? That whenever the women are not, you know, swayed by him, the, the exception maybe being his wife's friend, who he seems to be antithetical to, or at least always that ends with. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Because, like, at least he kind of has a respect for her, you know? Mm-hmm. But again, she's kind of desexualized because he respects her, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, so, anyway, we kind of went from religion into the gender dynamics, which is the part of the movie that's hard, and I get when people are like, that's a beautiful movie, I kind of hate it because of mm-hmm. the portrayal of women. I don't know that that's wrong, but I also think it's complicated only because I think he's fully aware that this is not a great portrayal. Like, I don't think the, I don't think he is under any illusions about what is happening in the movie, but is there something about the vulnerability of him showing these relationships with women? Is there something about that vulnerability that's also about um, justification? You know yeah, what I mean? Or a threshing of his demons? Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want to throw that because again, we're not experts, right? And the yeah. other movies we watched also featured women, right? So like, mm-hmm. female characters are a big part of his narratives that we've seen, but that doesn't necessarily make them not the male view of who those women are. Strong female characters can still be cast within a patriarchal mode if they aren't given dynamic human characteristics, right? Yeah, I mean, also, I mean, think about Knights of Kiberia. Right. He yeah. casted his wife as Kiberia, Julieta Messina. And, like, that was, like, his muse for that earlier Fellini. Because she was also in, um, she was, she was also in, what was the other one that she was in? Lestrada. Yes. Yeah, so it's like, I mean. God damn, remember how good Lestrada was, by the way? It's so good. I mean, they were both good, but... Knights of Kiberia was my favorite of the two, but I did Oh, is that right? Lestrada is that right? Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, like, part of it is just that exoner... That whole... Holding her up the way that he did, right? And yeah, the way that sure, sure. she's central to that story, and it's because she was his muse. You know what I mean? Like, it, 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 it's so... It so goes against this like misogynist read of eight and a half. Yeah. 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 But still, I mean, it's, I get that. Like, you know, I mean, that dream sequence is pretty fucked up and yeah, I, I think he knows that, but also, I yeah, mean, because at the end of the dream with, a sequence, sl- with a slight taste of racism in it, by the way, but yeah, I noted. Yeah. It was clocked, but yeah. still, I mean, like it ends up being a nightmare, right? He ends up right. getting kicked yes. out yes. of his own dream. Yes. So I don't know, man. It's a hard read. It's 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 a pickle to be chewed upon. You know what I'm saying? It is it is a hard it is definitely, I think, a tough thing to wrestle with. Let me be clear. I still love this movie. Like I'm not gonna pretend that I've ascended to a a high horse and I'm looking down upon Fellini and judging him because that would somehow make me pure or some bullshit like that like i fucking love this movie and i also love the ways that for me at least in my read that guido seems a bit flummoxed by these women and really the ending of the movie this giant kind of 
abstract carnival, yeah. carnival dance sequence. He's the boy, right? He's the little boy yeah. leading the marching band who probably doesn't really know what he's doing. He's still trying to figure it out, but he's in charge, right? I, I get all of that. And I think there's something in that that is very vulnerable, right? That's a vulnerable portrayal of him, this fucking i mean the na- movie's named eight and a half because he's made like eight and a half movies at this point yeah. right and so like this is this is a very vulnerable thing for him to be doing a film about how he feels washed up or he feels unable to create and and he broke that right to make this movie but there's still a sense of vulnerability there even if this is fictionalized whatever but again it's not directly vulnerable because it's not a direct it's only inspired by his life mm. as he was very quick to show point out it's not him. He made the movie. He made eight yeah. and a half. So is there a sense in which fictionalization can allow you to both confess and absolve yourself because it's all pretend anyway, right? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that that's something that I have done the few times I've ever written fiction in my life. I'm sure I was doing that myself, trying to both confess my sins and absolve myself in the same move, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, but that's the thing about this vulnerability in this movie, though, isn't it? Like, it yes. is. I mean, Fellini himself calls himself the greatest liar, right? Like, 100%. This, is, this is his lies, right? Right. And, I mean, I and don't the know, The fact man, that like, there, there's something truthful in it about creation, about, and about Fellini, about, you know, Catholicism. Yeah. And it doesn't even have to be a personal truth, right? Like, yeah, he's telling all these lies in his movies. Right. Uh, and yet there is this truth in all of them, maybe, mm. or I don't know about all of them. Right. Because some of them maybe don't work, but at least in the ones we've seen, there's this truth within it. And I think in eight and a half, he's fictionalized his life, right? He's drawing mm. from his experiences, but he's creating mythology from it and he's misrepresenting who he is and how he acts you know especially because i mean he's cast you know mastriani as this director that's (laughs) a beautiful handsome italian man yeah you could cast mastriani as the local shoe guy and women are going to throw them. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, uh-huh. Fellini is a very charming man, I assume. Right. But I've seen the fucking pictures, man. He's no goddamn Mastriani. Right. Like, that's not what was going on with with people's attraction to him. I don't think at least not when he was making eight and a half. Uh, but but, you know, putting that aside. So there is a, a mythologizing here. But like many mythologies. Right. Or or let's call them fabulations. Mm. He's also re- revealing and exploring truth and i think there's something interesting about that the problem becomes right it's 1963 and he has a very limited view of gender dynamics and so i think it's too simplistic to either say this is a celebration of misogyny which i just don't think it is but also it is a problem right but again it's 1963 of course it's a fucking problem you know what i mean like i don't know Mm -hmm. i don't know i don't know so i don't i don't want to dismiss anyone's concerns because i know people who really feel like Maybe this is his, not his worst movie, but their least favorite of his movies because of the ways that women are treated throughout the film. And I, as a, as a cis heterosexual man, I feel a little weird being like, yeah, it doesn't bother me. Like, of course, it doesn't <laughs> fucking bother me. You know what I mean? But yeah. on the other hand, I do think this is a beautiful movie. And I do think yeah. there's something about creation in it. You know, something about the act of creating as well as the act of being a director that is fucking revelatory right yeah i mean that's the thing with this movie though right like this movie substitutes narrative for tone it 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 sacrifices narrative for mood 
in a you way know? that I don't think his other movies do. Yeah, right? yeah, that's the thing. The only other director I could think of that did something like this, <coughs> I could think of. I would I would say Jodorowsky, of course, and I would say Kurosawa and Dreams. That's it. That's the only two movies uh, I can no, think of. Lots of people do this. I mean, no, not not to the way and not to the artistic um, vision, while still being vulnerable. No, well, no one. Yeah, not too many so. people have been, been able to meld those two forms of storytelling together as masterfully as Fellini has. And like I said, the only people I could think of that came close: Jodo and Kurosawa. That's it. I'm skeptical. I'm gonna I'm gonna put on record. I'm skeptical of the uniqueness, utter uniqueness of this in that sense. However, do I think it's rare? Yes. But I bet there are other directors and that we're just revealing, as we often do, <laughs> that we are not film experts, experts granted. per se. Yeah, I think but we okay. are, you know, I would you also know, we, I'd also put up still. I'd put up Bergman too. I'd put up Ingmar Bergman. Yeah. I mean it's it's hard because I find the melodrama and the passion and the humor of this so much more appealing than a certain amount of Bergman, but Bergman is still maybe on a purely abstract level, one of my favorite directors. And I haven't yeah. even seen all of his movies. Well, again, I haven't seen all of Fellini's movies either, but I've seen so few of his films. And yet all the ones I've seen, I love like literally yeah. my least favorite Bergman movie is the seventh seal, which is a yeah. masterpiece, right? It's like still so, so good. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, yeah. But I mean, I like, I like the silence more. I like, um, through a, through a glass darkly, I like that more. Wild strawberries. Oh, through a glass darkly. Oh my yeah. god, uh, so good. So yeah, good. wild strawberries too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, look, look. We're gonna circle back to Bergman as well because we have definitely <laughs> not plumbed the depths. But no. I, I, I think on our next episode, I'm hoping we're gonna do something silly because I feel like we've done a number of yeah. more serious things in a row. So let's. Do something utterly stupid, maybe not <laughs> utterly, yeah. but well, kind of stupid next time, and then we'll come back to something like Bergman. On, on, <laughs> yeah, after we can't that, be. You know? We're not that smart. Come on, let's not get ahead of ourselves here. One hundred percent not. Um, yeah, I'm sure there's a lot more to say. You know, in the like all of the sort of abstract stuff is done in a way where it's all intentional. None of it feels unplanned, uh, yeah. as you were saying. The the cinematography, the lighting is unbelievable. In this Contrasting film. in this movie is uh, so beautiful. The acting and costuming, unbelievable. Like there's While just still so having much... such a weirdly fluid script and storyline. Yes. yes. The acting is still exemplar in this movie, right? You yeah. still buy Anuka Mi's like hatred of Guido. You know what I mean? Despite her love for him. It's such an interesting, like, and that's the thing when you sacrifice narrative for tone and for mood, right? Like, I can't even tell you what this movie's about, but I can definitely tell you what this movie's about. Sure. Right. Yes. I, I loved it. I'm glad we watched it. And I think we're, we're I, wrapping I, it up. Yeah. I, uh, I, I don't often do this, but I did want to point out because, you know, a lot of the reviews on Letterboxd are positive, which if, with a few here and there that are negative, right? And one of the ones that was negative was from, Friend of the show, Evan Valella. Yeah. Who only gave this movie three stars. He likes it. He said he liked it, but he gave it three stars as opposed to, you know, so many people giving it five stars. And he said, 
Maybe it's just my opinion, but Guido seems like a total fucking chump. (laughs) 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 That just made me laugh. Again, I I love this movie. It's probably at least a four, if not a five star movie for me. Uh, But I get it. Like, there is this feeling maybe uh, that some people will have watching it where they're like, I hate this guy and that's okay. But. I also think there's something at work here. Even if you fucking hate Guido. Yeah. You could still see a beautiful movie in this movie. Yes. 100%. Yeah. All right. All right. I guess that's all we got. I mean, like I said, if you want the deepest theoretical analysis, you're going to have to go to somebody else. And I apologize. Yeah, you also shouldn't be listening to Sinfunks if that's what you're listening for. But I, I mean, we're OK, though. I don't want to totally discount our, our insights, but we're, we're not <laughs> we're not, you know, amazing or anything. You know? But. Fellini, I think he's amazing. I think this movie's amazing. And I think that if this has sparked any type of inspiration in you, you should definitely see it if you haven't. Agreed. And, uh, yeah, is there anything that you want to put up, Liam? Is there anything that uh, that you want to shout out or lift up before we end this episode? I like that lift up. Dana made fun of me at first for lifting things up because that's what they say in church stuff. Yeah, like, I want to lift up the blah, blah, blah. But I'm like, fuck, you're right. I say it all the time. <laughs> it's uh, still good. Well, no, I just, as, as usual, y'all, check us out on social media. Uh, I don't know how active we will be on Twitter in the future because Twitter really seems to be falling the fuck apart. Like, let's just yeah. admit it, you know? So, but we're still on Instagram and Facebook and eventually we'll be on some other social media, I'm sure. Or maybe Twitter will be revitalized because Musk sells it to someone who actually cares about things. I don't know. Who knows what's going to happen? I can't predict the future. But if you still are on uh, Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, we are there. Uh, check out some of the other shows on the network, of course. And please, you know, check out my t-shirt company, Rough Cut Fan Club. Uh, we just wrapped up a uh, Suzuki double, and we have another interesting retro double coming very soon. I don't think before this episode comes out, but uh, but keep an eye out. Uh, and then right after that, we're going to hopefully be doing a poll to see about reprinting some old designs because we've had nice. some requests for some reprints. So we'll, we'll do that soon. Uh, and yeah, just, uh, you know, be awesome. Uh, tell friends about the show and uh, remember that we love you. Yep. And we believe in you. And we will talk to you a little bit later on down the road. Thanks for listening. As always, rate, review, and subscribe, and we'll talk to you soon. That's it. Smoke bomb. You like spooky movies? Hair-raising tales. Insightful criticism. Judgmental hot takes. Then you're going to love Horror Business, the horror podcast on the Cinepunks Podcast Network dedicated to all things weird and spooky. My name is Leo Donald. And I'm Justin Lore. And every episode, we're going to tear apart your favorite and not-so-favorite horror movies to get to the bottom of what makes these movies great or maybe not great. <laughs> Whether it's The Beyond, Prince of Darkness, or Inseminoid, we dive in on a double feature every episode, and then we talk about it. Some of our insights are great, and sometimes we just complain. So if we have to suffer through it, so do you. Horror Business, available anywhere you find fine podcast products.